Welcome to the Grace Baptist Church podcast for Sunday, January 30th, 2022. Today's sermon will be part two from Hebrews chapter 4, verses 11 to 13. If you would like to follow along, please go to gracebaptistchurchnc.org, click the current sermons link at the top, and click today's manuscript. Welcome to Grace Baptist Church. To Hebrews, turn to Hebrews chapter 4. <clears throat> We're going to be in verses 11 to 13 this morning, as we were last week. Let me read those verses. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest, so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. And so the context is chapter 3 and 4, as we'll look at that in a few minutes. It is a warning to us that we move forward to our ultimate rest. We found now in Christ, but ultimately our rest in heaven. And so that's the purpose of these words in application for us. Verse 12, For the Word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing through the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, thank you for the day. May we today know nothing but Christ and him crucified. Thank you, Father, for these words that we sing, even as we've sung about the person and work of Christ. Thank you, Father, for your kindness to us in Christ, especially me this week. What a privilege to stand and and preach the oracles of God. And when I say that, Father, I say that with the, the greatest of humility. By your grace, may Christ be lifted up, may He increase, may we decrease. Father, use Your Word, spoken from someone like, someone like me. Listen to it for folks like us. Speak to us, Lord, as we consider the Word, the essential Word, who is Christ. We pray in Jesus' name, Amen. Last week, we looked at the written Word of God, going back to the spoken Word in the desert, and then the written Word, which we have, and they had that after Moses as well in the Old Testament. So that last week was the written Word. And we saw that in the written Word, the written Word is living. That was truth number one. Truth number two, powerful. And then finally, truth number three, judging. Today, we're going to do the same thing. But we're going to do that as we look unto Christ, who in John 1 is called, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And the Bible is really clear that Jesus is called the Word. And so today's sermon title is The Essential Word. And so the same things that we could say about the written Word we can say about Christ, who is, who is the Word of God. 
Well, let's begin with truth number one. The Word who is Christ is living. We saw this last week with the written Word, that it is living. It, is, it, it works. It is powerful as well as we'll get there. But it lives, the Word of God lives because of the one who gives it life. We live today because we have life. And we live because God lives. He is the living God. He is our source of life. We are created by Him, and He breathed life into us. But no one created God. He is life, and He has always been life. He has always been living. This is why the Bible says that idolatry is so wrong. To worship that which is dead, that which cannot see, that which cannot hear, that which cannot speak, is absolutely worthless to be to, to worship anything that has no power to do anything but to be dead. It's contrary to everything that God is because He is the living God. And so in this way, we can say that God is essential to everything. He is the essential source. He is life. And so that's, we can say that this word we preach today has life because God gives it. The same can be said of Christ. Without Christ, there is no life. And what the Bible says about God concerning life, it also says about the Son. And, and when we think about God the Father and God the Son, it isn't merely that God just gives the Son life. So here you go, here you go Son. Now I give you this life, so therefore you use it to make things living. No, the Bible says that Jesus is life. In the same way, the Bible says God is life. And so there's no, there, there's no hierarchy here in this respect. Both are said to be life. The same essential life that flows from the Father flows from the Son. We've seen this already. Look back at Hebrews 1. He is the radiance of the glory of God. He is the exact imprint of His nature, and He upholds the universe by the word of His power. In other words, every bit of life that exists, that came into being, <clears throat> it is upheld even now by the essential word who is Christ. So, for just a moment, let's consider some of the verses in the New Testament that speak where Jesus speaks about this life and Him being life. If you would, look over at John Chapter 14, probably one of the most famous verses. You probably know exactly where I'm going. John 14, look at verse 6. I remember this even in Spanish. Yo soy la, what is it? Help me out. La vida y la verdad y el camino. So I am the way, I am the truth, and I am the, I am the life. So Jesus says, I am life. And then he says in verse 7, If you had known me, you have not, would have known my Father also. From now on, you do, you do know him, and you have seen him. So here, concerning life, he is equating himself with the same life that the Father possesses. This is why he says in, in John 14, 1, Believe in God, believe also in me. And then he says, in verse 19 of that same chapter, Because I live, 
you also will live. I look over at John chapter 6. Context is Jesus just fed 5,000 men, and then there were women and children there as well, so there were more than 5,000. But he fed the 5,000 with just five loaves of bread and two fishes. Great miracle. And so after this miracle, he starts teaching the people. And he, and he uses that miracle to teach about himself. And he says to the religious leaders in chapter 6, verse 48, he says, I am the bread of life. And then he continues to explain what he means in verses 49 to 51. Here's what he says. He says, which goes back to our context in Hebrews here. He says, your fathers, they ate manna in the wilderness and they died. So they ate what is physical and then they perished. They died in the desert. This is the bread that comes down from heaven so that no one may eat of it and not die. And then he says, I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. And so really what he's doing is he's saying, listen, I am the bread of life. And so when the religious leaders heard that, they thought, wait, only God is living. How can you be also, how can you call yourself the bread of life? And so they get upset with Jesus in John 6 here because of him saying this. It's a very difficult saying. And then he says in verses 56 and 57, For my flesh is true food, my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him. And then he says, As the living Father sent me, I live because of the Father. So whoever feeds on me, he also will live because of me. And so at these words, most of the people leave Jesus. The religious leaders leave, and many of those whom he fed. When he started saying, I am the bread of life, I think he's equating eating his flesh and drinking his blood with faith in him. But when he said these things, everyone started to go away. And then he turns to his disciples. Do you remember what he says? He says, do you guys want to go away as well? And you remember what Peter said? We talked about this last week. We're going to come back to Peter a lot today. But he says, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. And we have believed and we have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. That's verses 66 to 69. John 1, 4. In Him was life. And the life was the light of men. And again, it's not just His ability to give life. He is life in the same sense, the same essential way that God is life. John also declares in 1 John chapter 1, verses 1 to 3, he says, That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon, we've touched Him with our hands concerning the Word of life. The life was made manifest. We've seen it. We testify to it and proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. That which we've seen, that's what which we've heard, we proclaim also to you so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. 
brothers and sisters, by way of application today, eternal life, not just life to live and sit and breathe and be here today, but eternal life comes from the Son. And it is clear that Jesus gives all of us life to live, but He also gives us eternal life. Do you remember the Samaritan woman at the well? He Jesus and the disciples were traveling in that, in that Samaritan region, half-mixed Jew and Gentile mixed together, Samaritans. And he comes to this woman who men did not speak to anyway, and he was a Jew and she was a Samaritan. They were supposed to hate them, but there was this woman, and Jesus had a divine appointment with this woman. And he said to her, you know, woman, if you drink this water... From this well, you're going to thirst again. But if you drink the water that I will give, it will be eternal life. A water that will do away with your thirst forever. So let me ask, why did she need eternal life? Why did this woman, why did he speak to her about eternal life? This is a good question for us. As we think about the world and we think about people coming up to us, talking to us about the gospel and about God in general. Because what does the world say when they think about, you know, eternal life? They think, well, most people I've talked to have said, you know what, all roads lead to heaven. You have your God, I have my God. You have your road, I have my road, we have our path. They all lead to heaven. And all of us are, are God's children. I think we run across that all the time. So as Christians, we have to be prepared to give an answer to answer the question, why do we need eternal life? Well, we need eternal life because the wages of sin is death. It's Romans 6.23. If you remember back to Adam, he's our physical first father. And Adam and Eve, they disobeyed God. God said, do not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for the day that you eat of it, what will happen? You will, you will die. Well, we know what happened. They ate. But did they physically die? No. Not at the moment. Now, many, many years later, physically their bodies do go back to the dust, as our bodies will do. They did not die at that time. But when they sinned, they were cut off from their source of that which gave them life. Life eternal. So they were cut off. And if God does not do something to make that right, Adam and Eve and all of us who came from Adam and Eve will also be separated from God forever because of our sin. This is why God sent His Son, the living Word, the Son of God. He sent Him to give us life. John 3.16 For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whosoever believes in Him will not perish but have what? Life. We already have physical life for now. He's talking about eternal life. And if you think back to what we just read in John 6, verse 51, Jesus says, I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. What is Jesus' flesh? What's he talking about there? Here I believe he's speaking of the cross. As those lambs of the Old Testament were physically laid on the altar and sacrificed, so Jesus laid down His life 
as a sacrifice. And God was satisfied with his sacrifice. This is, this is the cross. And that's why the Bible says, for those who believe in him, they will not perish, but have everlasting life. And I'm going to move on, but let me just mention something. This is a deep and beautiful truth. The union of deity and humanity in the same person, Christ, is the most beautiful truth. Because it makes all of the difference in the world between the effect of the sacrifices of the Old Testament. They're earthly, they were laid on the altar, and they look forward to picture something else. But humanity, deity, in one person made the cross effectual. Now, you, might, you've all, you may wonder, and maybe I'm going a little too deep thinking about this here, but some might say, well, did God, in His essence, die then on the cross? Of course not. Of course not. That is a great mystery. But the Bible speaks of Jesus in both, even as we're seeing here in Hebrews. He is human, 100%. He is divine, 100%. And so, this union is, is of utmost importance. That's why the Mormons and the Jehovah's Witnesses just say he was a sin, sinless man, therefore God accepted him. No, it goes much deeper than that. John 3.36, well, only the sacrifice of the Son is truly life-giving, because whoever believes in the Son has eternal life, but whoever rejects the Son shall not see life, for God's wrath remains on him. So, that's truth number one. The Word, Christ, is living. Christ is living. Number two, the Word is powerful. Our text here today says that the Word of God, and we're speaking of Christ now, is living and powerful. Now, it should be really easy for us to move to that truth. Really easy. For if the essential Word, who is Christ, is living... In the same way that the Father is described as being living, then it simply follows that He is powerful, that He is omnipotent. As God is omnipotent, so is the Son omnipotent. And so the word that we get here is energy. And the, and the, and the, the, the emphasis here is effective. As we saw from last week, is Isaiah 55, 11. The word goes out. As the rain comes down, the snow comes down, waters the earth. So my word goes out. And it will accomplish exactly what I want it to accomplish. So in the same kind of way, Christ is effectual. Okay, this is the written word last week. And Christ gives that written word its power. But Christ in and of himself, he is powerful. Uh, I know that, that everyone was excited about all the snow we were supposed to get this week, which we did not get. Um, Abby, thanks for the shaking of the head and the watching me there. But we were supposed to get it, but we did not get it. And so some of us were like, wow, it's, it's all gone. But one of the things we get all uptight about in our culture is we don't want to lose power. Because that, that often happens whenever... Did anybody lose power in the last few weeks? I'm just curious. Okay, none of us lost power. We, got, we probably got all upset about it working up to that. And we could lose power. That's... For sure, because when a big storm or something comes out and there's no lights, there's no hot water, there's no anything that we want. But you know what? It is never so with the Son of God. He never runs out of power. 
There are no, no limits because He is God. As God is powerful, so is the Son. So even when we consider the written Word we have in our hands, it certainly is the Word of God, but its power comes from its source, who is Christ. That's one of the reasons I believe that in this passage, He's speaking about the Word who is the Son and not the Word that as we are given in the written Word. So when you think of Jesus, every word that He ever spoke and every word that He ever will speak, it is the Word of God. Every word. Whereas we just have a little bit here in this book. Just a little bit. But every word that Christ spoke and Christ will speak is the Word of God. And the same power that commands and gives, so does the Son. Now, the picture here of the power of Christ is said to be sharper than any two-edged sword. Look at the verse there with me. I think of Isaiah 49.2, who is looking forward to the Messiah, which says, He made my mouth like a sharpened sword. <laughs> Sometimes we think our mouths are sharpened swords when we get upset, and we think that about our spouse or someone else, and we think, watch your tongue. Well, this is so much more than that. Revelation 1.16, in his right hand, he held seven stars, and coming out of his mouth was a sharp, double-edged sword. Now, have you ever tried to cut something with a dull knife? Recently, our, our knives got pretty dull, and so Kristen's like, we got to get some new, some new knives, so which we, we ended up buying some. But it's when you try to cut something, a piece of meat, with a dull knife, it's not very effective, and it doesn't work very well. But with the right knife, which usually is pretty expensive, cutting is very easy. It just goes right through that which it is cutting. In the same way, the power of Jesus is always powerful, powerfully effective. We saw this last week with the written word, which is called the sword of the Spirit, Ephesians 6, 17. <clears throat> and this word is said to be on his thigh. But it is Christ who always gives it the power. And Christ has this same power in himself. And he has life in himself, so he has power in himself. Now notice in these verses the effect of his power. Piercing to the division of soul and of spirit and joints and marrow, discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Now, I said a lot about this last week, so I'm not going to say as much, but remember our context here. Israel is there in the desert. They had rejected God's word of promise to enter in the land of Canaan, to go into the land of rest. And then they realized they had sinned. And God said, all right, I'm not going to go up with you. And then what happened? They said, oh, We'll go up, Lord. So they take their swords, and they take off, and they go out into the land there against, the, in that particular area, the Canaanites and the Amalekites. And what happened? Just like that. No efficiency, no power. God did not go up with them. Many of them died by the sword in those battles there right at the beginning. Well, this text... That's the context. This text teaches us that Jesus has much more power than merely to pierce the flesh with a two-edged sword. He is speaking of His power over things more important and more vital than merely that which is physical, 
So hear me close here. This is, this is what I want us to remember here. Here he is speaking of his power, talking about Christ, over things which cannot be seen. We cannot see soul and spirit, can we? Now, even joints and marrow, they're underneath our skin. We cannot see them as well. And then the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Who can see the thoughts and intentions of the heart? Even this week, as you've thought about your own heart and you've, you've thought, oh, I shouldn't have had that thought. I shouldn't have thought evil about my neighbor. I shouldn't have lusted after that woman or that man or whatever it is. Or I, I shouldn't have thought that against my parents when they asked me to do something. Or oh, I should have been more patient with my spouse, whatever. And you don't necessarily say it, but you think about your own heart. We cannot see those things. And so the Bible says... Jesus is the one who deals with those sorts of things. So I believe, here's what I believe this text is teaching us about the power of Christ. I believe he is speaking of the power of Christ to deal spiritually with the souls and consciences of men and women. So that's what he's doing today. Even when I preach this word about Christ, God is working. Christ is working to deal with your heart. Those things which you cannot see. As verse 13 says, no creature is hidden from his sight. Again, go back to the, the woman at the well, my illustration earlier. Jesus spoke with this woman. He had never met her. And then he says to her halfway through the conversation, Ma'am, woman, go and call your husband. and Tell him to come over here with us. Well, Jesus knew already, did he not? Because the Bible says, she answers, she says, Ah, I have no husband. So she's thinking, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to deceive him a little bit. Jesus says, you know what? You're right. For you've had five husbands. And the one that you have now is not your husband. Can you imagine how she felt when Jesus exposed that? That was down in her heart. And then Jesus exposed it. And she, I, I can't imagine the thoughts that went through her mind, her heart, to know that such a one as this, the Word, could know such things about her. And we know the story. Then she says, this is the Messiah. She runs and gets everybody. They come back out, and many believe on Him. Another illustration. John chapter 2, earlier on, just of Jesus knowing His power to know. John chapter 2, He was in Jerusalem for the Passover. Many believed in His name when they saw His miracles. But then we read in, uh, <clears throat> in John chapter 2, verses 23 to 25, But Jesus, after all these people believed on Him, after He'd done all these miracles, but Jesus on His part did not entrust Himself to them. In other words, He let them be. He didn't follow along with that, even those are some of the ones who possibly wanted to make him king or whatever. But he knew, the Bible says, because he knew all people, and he needed no one to bear witness about a man, for he himself knew what was in a man. So today, Jesus knows. He knew then, he knows now. He is powerful. He judges, he knows the heart. Let me give two more examples this morning. I'll spend a bit of, bit of time here in this last point, in the second point. Two examples of those who come face to face with Christ in the New Testament. First, 
Here's my two examples. The non-Christian. What is the one, the Bible says, those who do not believe, those who are perishing, the non-Christian. What happens when they come face to face with Christ who knows them? And the second example, in a moment, we're going to get to that. Um, the Christian. And in these two examples, I want us to notice closely how each one reacts to the power of the Word. So let's start with the non-Christian. I think of the example, the time when Jesus was passing over the Sea of Galilee. He was taking His disciples out. They were going to share the Gospel. And for the first time, they go over into a Gentile area, which He's just fulfilling the, the prophets of old. There He goes to the nations. He goes over the other side of the Sea of Galilee, and it's a Gentile area. And there they found a man who was possessed by demons. Not just one, but many. And so, if you remember this man, he lived where? He lived in the graveyard. Can you imagine someone living over here in Landis across the street amongst the tombs or wherever you are? That's where he lived. And he was, as he lived there, they often chained him. The, the local folks did. They were scared of him. And he would often break the chains because of the great power that was, that was in him because of those demons. And everybody was afraid of him. The Bible says he was always screaming out. You think, man, that crazy lunatic of a man. And he was cutting himself with stones. And there comes Jesus. And the Bible says this man saw him and came running down to where he was and fell down before him. And there Jesus cast out the demons from this man. And then what happened? The demons cry out to Jesus and say, let us go into the pigs that are nearby. And so he casts them out of this man, and they go into the pigs. And you remember the pigs? They go running down the hill and into the water, and they all drown. And so everybody in the nearby, in the town there, that was the, that was the news of the day. Everybody knew what happened. So they all come out to Jesus after what happened, and what did they say to Jesus? Jesus, you're welcome. We love you. We see what you've done. We see your great power. They did not say this. What did they say to him? They begged him to leave their region, and they had great fear. That's found in Luke 8. Brothers and sisters, the Bible says those who are perishing, we now, but by the grace of God, but non-Christians, this is how they react when they come face to face with Jesus. They run away. They are fearful of His Word. In the case of the religious leaders, they felt threatened. That's what the world does. They ridiculed Him. They scorned Him. Do you remember last week when we talked about the written Word having a hardening effect? On some folks, when they hear it, well, this is exactly what we see here in this Gentile region with these non-Christians. Well, this essential power that we're talking about belongs to Christ. And the power of Christ works in two ways, to either harden or to draw close to the non-Christian today. If you are here, and if you are not a Christian I would ask you to consider Christ and His Word. But if you find yourself, week after week after week after week, hardening more and more and more to the words of Christ, and the Word of Christ is doing exactly what the Word says it is doing in power, 
you will be just like one day if you continue to reject that which is priest. You will move away and you'll say, get away from me, Lord. Move away. I pray that will never happen to anybody who sits here week after week, week after week. And I praise God that we have the Word. And it's but by the grace of God because at some point, I and you, the Bible says, but God who is rich in His mercy. (laughs) Ephesians 1, great blessings. Ephesians 2, we were dead in our trespasses and sins. But God, according to His love, He predestined us, He called us, and the effectual working of the power as we heard the Word of Christ, we believe, but it is only by the grace of God. But generally speaking, non-Christians will keep going down that road and they will continue to be hardened and the judgment of God will come upon them one day. So that's a non-Christian. Now for the Christian, how do, how do Christians respond to the powerful Word of Christ, to Christ Himself? Do you remember Peter's conversation with our Lord at the very end of the book of John? Jesus had already risen from the dead and Then, I'm going to retell the story. If you go back, right before Jesus died on the cross, what did Peter tell Jesus? Peter said, Jesus, I'll never leave you. I'll never forsake you. Where you go, I will go. If you die, I will die. If you raise up the sword, I'll raise up the sword. He was saying, I'm with you, and I will never forsake you. But then what happened in the garden when persecution came? Peter left. He ran away. All of them ran away. And then, as he tries to follow along, as Jesus is being taken to the the places for his judgment, they're going to the cross that night. He stays around, and then what happens to him? Three times, (laughs) he denies he knows the Lord Jesus. Someone says, Peter, you were with him. Peter, you're with him. Peter, you're with him. He even curses them and says, no, I don't know that man. Then, of course, the rooster crows. So that's Peter. Then, after Jesus is risen from the dead, can you imagine how he was feeling then? We can imagine. But at one point there, after he had risen from the dead, Peter and some of the disciples, I think there were seven of them, they go fishing. And just before daybreak, they're out on the lake or the the, the Sea of Galilee, And just before the light comes up, someone from the shore cries out, Hey, how many fish you caught? If you're like me, if I walk up to to Lake Corrier over here, if I go play disc golf and somebody's fishing, I'm going to say, Hey, how you doing? You catch any fish? Because I want them to say, Yeah, I caught a lot today. Blaine, almost monthly, I'll say, Blaine, how many fish you catch? And he's usually saying, I caught a lot. But I'm excited about that. That's what we do. How many fish? And so someone from the shore says, It's still dark. Hey, how many fish y'all caught? So they're probably thinking, somebody on the, on the shore is just going to say, what's going on with the fishing? How's it doing? Should I go fish today? And they said, we ain't caught anything. Not a thing. And so the person on the shore then says, hey, why don't you throw it over there on the right side of the boat? And you might find some fish, or you will find some fish. And so I'm wondering what's going on here. Are they wondering already, is this the Lord Jesus? Or are they just like, oh, we'll just give them a whatever. But what did they do? They threw their nets back on the right-hand side of the boat. And what happened? They couldn't bring the nets into the boat because there were so many fish in the net. And then 
John, who is called the beloved disciple, it doesn't name his name in the book of John, the one whom Jesus loved, says, hey guys, and I imagine he didn't say hey guys, he probably screamed at the top of his lungs, it's the Lord Jesus, that's him, and they all knew it. And so, what happens next? Well, six of them at least get the fish out, okay? They work on the fish. What does Peter do? The one who had denied the Lord three times. Peter says he actually puts on his coat and he jumps in the water and he doesn't wade back in or say, throw me something. I imagine he is bolting for the, for the shore. He is swimming as fast as he can get to the land. And there we find the Lord Jesus himself who is serving them even in his resurrected body and he's already cooked up or got a fire prepared for the fish they caught, and they would come in, and they would cook the fish. And then, at some point that morning, Jesus, I don't, I'm not sure if it was private or not, you have to ch check me on that, but he, Jesus asks Peter, Peter, do you love me? Peter just denied him three times. And on the third time, after asking him three times, it's like Peter's saying, okay, enough, Lord. You know that I love you. Why? You know everything. You know that I love you. Peter's heart was laid bare before Christ. And because his heart was known by, by the Lord, <laughs> Peter does not, think about it, he doesn't take the boat away somewhere else and say, oh, that's the Lord, I've sinned against Him, I'm going to leave Him. He doesn't. Just say, hey, let's get away as those in back earlier with the demon-possessed, the, the people that said, get away from me. Instead, what does he do? He runs, he jumps in the water, and he says, Lord, correct me, instruct me. And so what a picture of the Christian who stands before the Word, knowing that Christ knows everything, even when we've denied Him. Three times, four times, 20 times, 70 times, seven times. Even when we have sinned the same sin over and over and over again, the Word and the power of Christ upon us, what do we do? We run to Him and we say, Lord, You know everything here. Have Your way with me. Teach me. Instruct me. So for those of us, those of you who belong to Christ, you know what this is like. That story resounds with you. Because I, you know what I'm talking about. When you look at your life, and you look at all of your sin, and you look at all of your shame, and yet all you can do is still run to Christ, or swim to Him. That's much more dangerous than running. Who knows you? Well, this is His great power over you by the Spirit. The one through whom, when you don't even know what you should pray, you cry out with yearnings, and by the Spirit you cry out, Abba, Father, have mercy upon me. I did the same thing this morning. And many of you do this, did the same thing as well. That's living. The Word is living. Christ is living. And two, Christ is powerful. This third point is not as long, but it is the same as last week. 
Christ is judging. I'm not sure it's the best word, and there's a lot more I could say, but I get this from verse 13. No creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. We've already seen that with his power to look into our souls and judge our hearts. And of course, we're going to give an account to God. Of course, the Bible says that. But if I am right in my understanding of the word logos, here in verse... By the way, it don't even show up in verse 13 in the English. But the word logos is at the beginning, it's at verse 12, and it is also at the end of verse 13. And I'm not going to get into all that this morning. But because Christ knows all and everyone and everything... Everyone and everything is laid bare before Him. And so He always makes right judgments. He is judging. As we've already seen, His mouth is like a sharp two-edged sword. The book of Revelation, as we read, out of His mouth was a sharp double-edged sword. Isaiah 11, He will strike the earth with the rod of His mouth. With the breath of His lips, He shall shall kill the wicked. Now, there's many things I could say, but I think of the judgments of Christ now. And I think of the judgment to come. So I'm thinking of judgments in two ways. His judgments He makes now and His judgment to come. And I'll come back to those in a second. But let me say this, for the Christian, for us today, there are and there will be judgments with us, upon us. But the ultimate judgment which is eternal judgment, has already taken place on the cross. And so, in that regard, God will not judge you, again, ultimately, as, re- as regards to eternal judgment, because eternal judgment fell upon the Son on the cross. Though He was sinless, He did not deserve judgment, but He willingly laid down His life as a sacrifice for judgment in our place. And for those who believe in Him, eternal judgment has already happened. So, if today, if you are... Believing in the Son, the Son has set you free, you are free indeed. Okay? So that's, that's not what we're talking about here. I'm talking about just general judgments upon the church, m- making the right judgment. Again, that's why I'm thinking maybe the Word isn't the best, but it, it'll do for us when I explain, I think. When you think about Revelation, first few chapters in Revelation, what happens in the first <clears throat> three, ch- three chapters of Revelation? We see Christ appearing before John and then speaking to the seven churches, okay? I believe those are individual churches. However, they represent, in principle, all churches, okay? So we could put ourselves in one or in two or in three or in seven of those churches and more. But in those verses... Five of the seven churches, Jesus has some some judgment calls to make upon them. Here's what he says. I'm just going to give them generally. He says to one of them, I know your works. And if you do not change or repent, then I will come to you and I will remove your lampstand, lampstand from its place. Or to another church. I will war against you with the sword of my mouth. Or I will come like a thief when you do not expect it. Or I will, if you are lukewarm, I will spit you out of my mouth. 
to one church. What was, so we think about what were the judgment calls being made on these churches. To one church, it was losing their first love. To another church, it was tolerating false teaching. To another, they were allowing sin in their midst. They all knew about it, and sin continued. To another church, he says, you are dead. And he warned them to wake up. To another, they were lukewarm. Brothers and sisters, this morning, these words of warning come from the living, powerful, judging Word of God. So if we were to think about those today, just by way of application, and I'm not even going to give answers this morning, but it's something that we as elders must think about, and we as a church must think about. What would Jesus say to us if we were in the book of Revelation there, and he were coming to Grace Baptist? Because I'm sure there would be some things he would commend, and I, I, I believe there would be other things as well that he would not commend, and he would tell us the same, to repent. And so... I think about that a lot because when we think about churches, individual churches come and they go. I mean, if we want to be just really honest about things, we, some of us split off of another church, did we not? We've heard of other splits. We've heard of some churches just go dead and dying. And the Christians that are there leave and they go somewhere else. That's what happens. Now, the true church will remain, and the gates of hell will not prevail against the building of His church. But individual churches, based upon how well we hold on to the gospel and obey the commands of Christ, will determine whether we continue on five years from now or ten years from now. We don't know. We don't know when the Lord will come back. And so it's very important to me, and it should be to us as a pastor, to ask ourselves, what do we need to be repentant of? And, I, and I, would, I would ask you even now that, that you would consider praying for us in this regard as we have an elders retreat coming up in a couple months, that we also would, that God would help us to know some of these things, that we might be able to communicate those things. So there are judgments made now, brothers and sisters, for sure. But one day there will be the final judgment when we will stand before the Lord Jesus, who is the judge. John 5, 22. For the Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son. 2 Corinthians 5.10 For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. Matthew 16.27 For the Son of Man is going to come with His angels in the glory of His Father, and then He will repay each person according to what He has done. So today, none of us, Man or woman or child, older, younger, angel, any living creature will ever escape the judgment of the living and powerful Word who is Christ. So He is living, He is powerful, He is judging. Let me end with just a few applications and comments. Today, the greatest living, powerful, Example of Christ, if someone were to ask you that, what is the greatest example of the living, powerful, judging Christ? What would you say as a Christian? Would it be the Word? 
Well, you could say that, but example, I would say very clearly, would be the resurrection from the dead. Because Paul prays for the Ephesians that they might know the power that works in them. When we think about the resurrection of the dead, he is the living God. Death could not hold him. He is risen. And today, for us, the same power that rose Jesus from the dead is the same power that gives us eternal life, will raise our bodies and give us new ones one day, and now keeps us going. And so, the resurrection of Christ. Another application. John 15, probably one of our, some of our most, I guess, most favorite verses, I'm sure. Apart from Christ, we can do nothing. If He's living, we cannot find life outside of Him. If He's powerful, how are we going to live rightly? How are we going to not fall away? Even as Hebrews talks about falling away from the Lord. How are we going to do that? How are we going to make right judgments in our lives to know what is true and what is right? As the branch cannot grow apart from the vine, so we can do nothing apart from the power of Christ. For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation for all who believe. We need Christ today. To say that we need the gospel every day is to say that we need Christ. Next week we're going to take the Lord's Supper, the bread of life, picture for us. But we need Christ every day. And so there's nothing that we can do apart from Him. Another application. Knowing that, that everything is laid bare before Him, shouldn't the preaching of these truths today cause us to have much more fear and more awe of Him to whom we will give an account one day? And since these things are true, shouldn't we walk in this Christian life with great or greater care and diligence to do what is right in everything that we do? To do what is pleasing to the Father, to the Son, to the Holy Spirit. Oh, so much we could do there. But at the end of the day, everyone, every creature is exposed before Christ. And no one who hears about Him and considers the great gospel of Christ that, that I preach, that we preach, is ever left in the same condition. Even today, you will move closer to Him you will say, I want him more, or you will move further away from him. But over a period of time, hearing the gospel of Christ preached, you will not stay the same. You will go one way, or you will go the other. You will be saved by his grace, or you will perish in his wrath. So with those who are saved, his words are life. We hear the, the voice of the word of God, and we live. Sharper than any two-edged sword pierces all the way to the heart. And we say, yes, Lord, you have, as Peter, you have the words of eternal life. But to those who are perishing, the word of Christ has the opposite effect. Those who hear it, who are not Christians and are moving away from Him, it repels them. Christ is repelled and they beg the Lord to go away. So lots more I can say this morning, but I pray that these words will be helpful as we look under Christ this week, that we have life because of Him. Not just physical life, but eternal life 
and every bit of power that we have that we want to go out and do what's right and follow the commands of God, the commands of Christ comes because of His power. And all of our right to make judgments and being exposed for Him as the judge of all as we go out this week, hopefully these things will be helpful to us. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, thank you for these words this morning, the words of life. Thank you for the essential word who gives this written word power, before whom we all will give an account. Thank you for the word who is Christ. He is living, he is powerful, he is judging. Help us this week, Lord, to, to love Christ with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. May He be more beautiful to us even today as I've preached Christ in this way. Pray that there have been words that have been said that are not helpful or not good, that we would forget them. But those words that were said that, that, that speak beautifully of Your grace in Christ, I pray that we would remember them and, and help us this week, Father, till we are able to meet again. In Jesus' name we pray. Thank you for listening to the Grace Baptist Church podcast. You can listen to past sermons at podbean.com. Search Grace Baptist Church, China Grove to find us. You can also find us on Apple Podcast. Search Grace Baptist Church, China Grove. You can also join us at the South Row Inn YMCA, 950 Kimball Road, China Grove, North Carolina. We meet on Sunday mornings at 930 for fellowship and service starts at 10. Thank you for listening and remember to be intentional in making disciples this week.